Welcome to this episode of Wall Street to Main Street. I'm your host, Emily Advani, here with my co-host, finance expert and author, and my husband, Ruben Advani. So Ruben, it feels good to be back. It sure does, Emily. So Wall Street to Main Street started out as a radio show, and we're finally embracing the 21st century here and transitioning it to a podcast. It's pretty exciting. We're 18 years uh, late, but hey, better late than never. This is true. So you call yourself, or maybe I call you, a finance expert. What qualifies you as a finance expert? Well, I'm not sure I would necessarily consider myself a finance expert, although I did use that line on you on our first date, and apparently it worked. So, hey, I guess I'm okay with that moniker. Well, I also need something to tell the other PTO moms at our mom club meetings what you are, and I just I blurred out finance expert. It sounds cool. Okay. If it makes you uh, feel popular with your friends, I'm okay with it. But you do have some experience in finance and you do kind of know a lot about it. And where did you learn all this stuff? I probably know more than the average person. I started my career on Wall Street. I worked for a major investment bank for a number of years. And I was, for the most part, uh, kind of in the trenches in terms of financial analysis. So it was a fantastic experience to learn finance uh, with that level of depth. And then uh, I w- went on to found a financial education company working on developing programs for non-financial professionals. And during that time, I also authored two finance books. So I, I probably know a thing or two about finance and I stay active in the community as uh, an adjunct instructor of finance at a number of universities. And one of your books, The Wall Street MBA, just launched its third edition. It sure did. My publisher, McGraw-Hill, reached out to me a little while ago and said, there's a great deal happening in the world of finance, and we'd love it if you would consider updating your book uh, to include sections on managerial uh, accounting, uh, portfolio theory, and even the business of finance, because it's truly transformed itself in the last few years. And I said, I would love to. Much like your book, what is it that we're going to be doing here on this podcast? Well, our podcast is really an attempt to help the average folks understand what's happening at the highest levels of finance. And that includes key decisions made in government or on Wall Street. And for that reason, oftentimes Main Street is overlooked. And our goal is to help folks really understand what's happening and how they can best maneuver these situations. And this is going to be a combination of both timely financial issues and events and also some foundational finance and business concepts, right? That's exactly right. There are concepts that have been around for many years and they're often misunderstood. And our goal will also be to explain these concepts in very simple terms so that the average person, whether it's a high school student who doesn't know the difference between a stock and a bond or a retiree who spent 40 years on Wall Street, our goal will be to explain these concepts to them in very basic terms. So you get Wall Street, but you also get Main Street, right? I mean, we're living the full Main Street life here, aren't we? We're living the dream here, Emily. The white picket fence, 2.5 kids. Every morning I wake (laughs) up next to you, it's a reminder that I'm just living the dream. Oh, here on Main Street, thank you. (laughs) That's right. All right, well, let's jump right in. It has been 10 years since Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. 
this is one of those events where people say, do you remember where you were when? And do you remember? I, I absolutely do. And it's it was interesting because I was at a wedding. It was on a Sunday. It was late afternoon, early evening. And the wedding was just outside Manhattan. And it just so happened that the, um, the groom was an old friend of mine who I worked with back in my Wall Street days. So as you can imagine, many of the attendees were Wall Streeters, people who worked for major investment banks, including, I believe, a few who worked for Lehman. So while the bride and groom were exchanging their vows, members of the wedding party were checking their Blackberries. Blackberry. Because, so, that's right. That, <laughs> it, it tells you how far back we're going. That was a decade ago. They were checking their Blackberries because they knew something big was happening. And as the evening progressed, many were questioning whether they would have jobs the next day. And before the wedding cake was even cut, half the wedding party disappeared. Wow. I mean, why was this event so catastrophic? Why was it so important? Why do people use this as the marker of when the economy collapsed when we truly went into recession. While the warning signs were there that something something was happening in the world of finance, because only six months prior, Bear Stearns was on the verge of collapse, Lehman was a watershed because Lehman was amongst the mightiest of mighty Wall Street banks. So the fact that Lehman could fall was an indication that the entire financial system was on the verge of collapse. And 10 years on, I mean, what does it look like now? What, what does the landscape look like now? Have we recovered? You know, that's a question. It's been a whole decade. It's been a decade. And have we truly recovered? It's not an easy question to answer. And here's why. You almost have to look at it in terms of various segments of the economy. If you ask people on Wall Street, have we recovered? Many in fact, probably most of them would say, sure, we've recovered. Why would they say this? Well, their uh, bonuses have probably never been stronger. The stock market has never been higher. And corporate growth and other major economic metrics are robust. So from that standpoint, it does appear that we've fully recovered and then some. On the other hand, you ask folks on Wall Street, folks who uh, still have trouble paying their, excuse me, folks on, on Main Street, folks who, who still have trouble paying their mortgage, folks who have lost their jobs to, uh, to outsourced opportunities overseas. These are people who still feel like they haven't recovered, especially in the manufacturing sector, especially people who live in the Rust Belt. The, the moral to this story is that certain segments of our economy have indeed recovered and others perhaps have not. So as we're talking about recovery, there's also discussion that we're headed into another recession, Ruben. Why do people think that? I think at the heart of this is the fact that economics follow cycles. And we've now been on an uptrend for many years. The stock market has reached an all-time high and uh, GDP growth is strong, gross domestic product. Uh, an indicator of overall economic growth. Unemployment is very low. And folks are concerned that things are just too good. And there's a concern that uh, a reversal is, is in our sights. Now, there's a great deal of debate. The world is divided. Some think there's much more room for the economy to run, uh, whereas others think a recession is imminent. 
aren't there safeguards after this most recent recession? Aren't there safeguards to help protect the economy from another collapse? Yes, indeed, uh, there, there was legislation that came about as a result of the, 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 the financial uh, collapse from 10 years ago. Dodd-Frank was designed to protect the consumer and also impose limitations on major financial institutions. But one thing we've learned about Wall Street is that it's run by very clever people, people who come up with new ways to exploit change. And what that can mean is that perhaps the next financial crisis is brewing. And if we were to enter into another financial crisis, everyone's going to feel it, right? Wall Street, Main Street, we're all going to be in a situation where this will affect our lives. Most people agree that the next financial crisis will be impactful across every segment of society. And this has a lot to do with technology. The fact is technology is more advanced today than it was 10 years ago. And things move very quickly. And when things move very quickly, it's very difficult to contain adverse reactions to systemic change. Well, and you did mention technology. Um, and I have to ask you about Amazon and Apple. We cannot do this podcast without touching on the fact that both of these companies have crossed the trillion dollar valuation marks in their respective companies. I mean, trillion dollar valuation? I mean, are we serious? It's mind blowing. If you would have told me a couple of years ago that Apple would be a trillion dollar company or Amazon would have been a trillion dollar company, I would have said we're at least uh, five to 10 years away from that. Uh, but uh, I'm as surprised as, as anyone else. This, this is monumental. This is truly a game changer for the stock market. And this, this growth in those companies, is that part of the, the drivers that are inflating the market overall? It is. It is. In fact, um, right now, there, there have been a number of studies that have pointed to the fact that these large cap technology companies are carrying a great deal of weight in the upward movement of major market indices. In other words, Amazon accounts for a significant portion of the gains in the S&P 500. And so what does that mean for somebody who's investing in the market? It means don't be fooled. Don't assume that just because Amazon is surging, every other company you invest in is surging as well. That's not the case. In fact, many small cap or smaller technology companies have been left behind in the stock market surge. And speaking of sort of lumping companies together, specifically lumping tech companies together, people often put Amazon and Apple in the same sentence. They put them together. They talk about them together. Obviously, they hit these trillion dollar valuation marks around the same time. But are they truly the same type of company? Not at all. Not at all. And let, let's take a step backward and, and explore why this paradigm can be somewhat dangerous. So for the last several years, people have talked about FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Alphabet, or Apple, depending on, on oh, who you... I thought that was like vampire terms. Like vampire's really hot right <laughs> well, now. Well, you, you can get bitten by these stocks, so be careful. Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, Netflix, and Google. So, yeah, Fang stocks en encompasses all of them. And they're, they're Sorry some to interrupt tweaking. again, but can you Alphabet just for people... Alf Al Alphabet is the parent company of Google, but if... Google is the G and all of that, then 
then it's pretty clear that we're talking about Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. I just mentioned that some people have uh, different, different, a, a couple of variations in terms of which companies comprise that uh, that acronym. And the belief was that these stocks move in tandem. But what we've realized is that they don't move necessarily move in tandem because some of the social media stocks uh, have actually uh, come under fire recently. Concerns about privacy and uh, recent congressional testimony has cast doubt on the viability of their, their business model, or at least in the near term. So we've seen some decoupling amongst this this group of stocks. So first and foremost, that's an indicator that, that they're not alike, that they actually can move in, in uh, divergent direction uh, based on factors that affect their individual business models. But more specifically, when it when it comes to Apple and Amazon, indeed, they are two bellwethers of the market and indeed each has crossed the trillion dollar mark, but their business models are very different. Their markets are very different. Apple is a product company and they make very good products. And recently they announced some changes to their key products and something that drove their stock price higher was the changes announced to the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch is fast becoming a health monitoring piece of hardware, one that could change the way people track their health and, that, and one that could prove disruptive across the healthcare industry. And what about sort of the communications industry? Can you, can you envision a world where none of us are holding phones in our hands anymore and we just have these Apple Watches on our wrists? It's possible. If Apple continues to they make... They must be envisioning this world. Right? Uh, one, w one would think, but Apple's very secretive about what they believe the world will look like years from now. They, they, they indicate it by these product changes, but who knows what else they have in mind. I know Apple's invested heavily in other technologies, augmented reality, which is also starting to take shape in some of their products. So it's anyone's guess. They've also invested in uh, car technology. We'll see. Apple is an innovative company, one that uh, constantly astounds uh, even the most tech savvy amongst us. Now, Amazon, on the other hand, Amazon's really a services company, and some people would, would, um, would argue with me on this, but they really are. Nonetheless, their services have changed the way we shop. I, I personally can attest to the fact that innovations coming out of Amazon save me about 10 hours a week. That's 10 hours that I don't have to go shopping to pick up whatever it might be, anything from groceries to clothes to office supplies, 10 hours a week that I can spend volunteering my time, hanging out with you and our family, uh, taking the kids to activities, 10 hours. Would you spend that 10 hours a week cleaning, cleaning the house? Cleaning, absolutely Please. not. If, if it comes to that, I'll close my Amazon account. <laughs> well, and we even did our back-to-school shopping on Amazon this year. We did just about every element of shopping through Amazon. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, we welcomed a newborn. We did. Um, you know, currently five weeks old. And it came to a point where I couldn't take the other kids to Staples to get all their back-to-school stuff. We just point and click, and within a couple of days, it's here. I mean, I, you're seeing a disruption in the retail market. I mean, there's stores that are closing. I don't know if you can directly attribute it to Amazon, but, you know, Amazon's sort of at the forefront of this cultural shift where people point and click, and with Amazon Prime, in a couple of days, whatever you needed is on your doorstep. In a couple of days, sometimes in the same day. I, I ordered something yesterday. I won't tell you what it is. I might, I might get in trouble. Um, but, but 
it should as long be. As it's not another motorcycle. It's not another motor- motorcycle. I promise you that. It should be here today, and I'm pretty excited about that. Ab- Amazon is not only a colossal game changer in terms of consumer convenience, but it goes well beyond that. It goes into the analytics around the the, the data that's amassed through these these transactions. And you can well imagine, or, or maybe we can't even imagine what Amazon can do with that information. So to make a very long story short, Amazon's an innovative company that's changing the way consumers manage their daily lives and creating massive stores of data for which the sky's the limit in terms of how that data can be monetized. And is that really where the value lies? Because some people argue, well, they're not really creating anything. Like an Apple, they're creating products, they're selling products direct to consumer. That the, the value in Amazon is this um, access to services and also the data. Well, I think what you're talking about is two different ways to measure growth. When it comes to, to Apple, you're talking about more established metrics of growth and in turn valuation. They're selling more products, they're making more money, they're worth more. See that, I get. Yes. When it comes to Amazon, it's somewhat more esoteric. Amazon is selling more. That doesn't always translate to earning more. And it doesn't always sync with traditional valuation methodologies. Yet nonetheless, their stock price continues to break new ground and people are diving in. I think when it comes to Amazon, the belief is that whether they make their money now or make their money in the future, somehow they'll figure it out. They'll figure out a long-term sustainable business model that allows them to generate substantial profit growth. And speaking of stock valuations, there's one valuation on the market that has taken a dive, and that's Tesla. Now, every time we're driving around, we're headed out to school, we're doing our thing, we're going out to dinner, and you see a Tesla drive by, you, you can't help yourself but to make a comment. And why is that? Well, so first of all, let me say this. I, I, I'm a, a big fan of Tesla. And car. it's a good-looking car. And it's run by a very charismatic CEO who is, by most accounts, a true visionary. But he's not without his problems. And one of the reasons I chuckle to myself is because I look at Tesla. And I look at the driver behind a Tesla. And I think to myself, that poor guy... He's just one tweet away from losing a significant amount of value in his car. Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, the power of a tweet is quite substantial. Each time Elon Musk tweets something, it has a toxic effect on Tesla's stock price. At least in the last several weeks it has. And the problem with Tesla is while it is a very strong brand, the belief is that the company is teetering on the verge of potential economic or financial collapse. And these tweets are not helping. They're eroding confidence in Musk's management abilities, and they're eroding confidence in the state of the company's balance sheet. No, isn't there like a three-year waiting list? Some of these vehicles. I believe, yeah. Some of their models have a three-year waiting list. So given a bad case scenario, you know, if this company collapses, you've got these people on this waiting list for a product that now no longer exists? Potentially. Some of them may not even recover their deposits, and some of them have, have placed 
pretty substantial deposits. Teslas are not are not inexpensive cars. People put down a lot of money for the right to own one, even though it could take three years. And it's amazing that there's all this demand for the product, but it's somehow not translating to that valuation. Well, th this is at the at the heart of the, the Tesla paradox. On the one hand, you have one of the hottest brands in the world, a brand that produces a product for which demand is unprecedented, yet the stock price is down 25% from its peak, and the company has a, a major tranche of debt coming due next year, a tranche that many believe will not... Uh, will not come to fruition. They, they believe that uh, Tesla may have trouble making those payments. And this also speaks to, you know, one of these things that, you know, sometimes a company's stock is not just dictated by the quality of the company, quality of the product, but can be dictated by the personality of a CEO. I mean, this is not the first time this has happened where a CEO as a person has really affected the market. Indeed, it's not the first time and it will not be the last time. The cult of personality plays a big role in the financial world. And when that cult is very strong, it can drive a stock price higher. When that cult weakens or confidence in that cult leader weakens, the stock price can collapse. And this is something that Tesla's board is grappling with. They recognize that Musk is a visionary, an innovator. But on the other hand, He's also a bit of a wild card, and they can't afford to let his mood dictate the fate of that company. So, Ruben, we talked about a lot of stuff today. The 10-year anniversary of Lehman filing for bankruptcy. Are we recovering? Have we recovered? Are we going to another recession? We talked about Amazon and Apple, that trillion-dollar valuation mark. And we talked about Tesla and, no pun intended, their bumps in the road. So what can listeners take away from all of this stuff we covered? I think first and foremost, coming back to our original, our initial conversation around the 10-year the anniversary of the financial crisis, I think it's important to understand that the economy follows cycles. However, no two cycles are alike. Don't assume that just because the last economic cycle was seven years in duration, the next one will be seven years in duration. It's very difficult to predict human behavior. But understand that cycles do happen. And when the warning signs present themselves, it's worth uh, endeavoring uh, steps to protect yourself. And in future episodes, we can talk about some of those steps. Okay. We also talked about Apple and Amazon. I think the most important takeaway from that discussion is that no two stocks are alike. Just because both stocks are hovering around the trillion dollar market cap level doesn't mean that their future uh, opportunities and prospects are consistently robust. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that just because two stocks are doing well and driving the market that all stocks are doing well. That's exactly right. When you're investing, it pays to do your homework and really, truly understand what you're investing in. And speaking of doing your homework and understanding factors outside of that, you know, the, the valuation, what can we take away from Tesla? Good company that is facing some serious challenges, 
because of the seemingly erratic behavior of a visionary CEO. This is a story that's played out many times. Sometimes it ends well, sometimes it doesn't. Again, it comes back to the central theme of do your do your homework and understand that while Tesla is a company that, that struggles to meet the demand for its amazing products, which is a, a very good problem to have, on the other hand, they're running into some financial challenges. They're over leveraged. And it doesn't help that their CEO tweets about all kinds of things that have little to, to nothing to do with the actual core operations of the business. And when that happens, it erodes confidence in his management style. So again, do your homework and understand the variables that drive a company forward, both in the near term as well as the long term. Well, thank you, Ruben. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Wall Street to Main Street. Again, I'm your host, Emily Bonney, joined with my co-host and husband, Ruben Advani, join us for future episodes where we cover more finance topics and how they're affecting your life on Main Street. Thanks again, Ruben. Thanks, Emily.